Welcome to another episode of Electable. I'm Deb Chubb, and uh, I'm here with Dr. Valerie McRae, who is a candidate for United States Senate in Indiana. So uh, this is a this is a, a big deal. And um, and Valerie, at first, I just want to thank you for coming on and talking with me today. Thank you, thank you, Deb. Thanks for inviting me. That's always a an honor to be invited to such, you know, your show. I heard it has a great following. And so just to be among your, your guests is, is an honor actually. Oh, well, that's very sweet. So, um, so well, and it's because, you know, we have great people in Indiana to talk to like you. So, um, so uh, this, is, um, this is a hard, hard um, project that you have decided to undertake. So I want to first ask you, um, uh, can a Democrat win this race? Absolutely, absolutely. We were uh, there for Obama. We turned the state blue uh, for Obama. I think we can do it again with the right candidate. And I think I'm the right candidate. I think it's absolutely possible. I think we're more purple than what people understand. Um, but I think that all we have to do is make sure we energize that purple base, that, that base of people that that are sort of, you know, I'm just gonna vote for what I, what's right and not necessarily for party. So I think we can turn those to blue. Uh, and we are definitely, it's a misnomer. I think we're very much a purple state here in Indiana. Excellent. All right, okay, so these are, these are like, like two or three questions, but it's really all kind of the same. The question is, what inspired you to run and or what are the issues that are most important to you that you believe you can address by becoming the next U.S. Senator um, from Indiana. And, um, and what are you gonna do uh, to help Indiana? So this, that's a lot. So, so tell me first, you know, what, what was it that really inspired you to run? Uh, Deb, the thing, what people, just to give you my background, I'm a psychologist and I work mainly in the trenches uh, with the worst situations in trauma. I work in the prisons with the seriously mentally ill. There was trauma before they got there. I work with veterans. Uh, I listen to their stories. I've listened to thousands of war stories. And I work with the Stop the Violence movement, mainly because those young kids that are uh, being violent right now, uh, I know those, those children from, from Logansport um, Boys School and that sort of thing. What inspired me? I don't know if it was an inspiration or a more of a just a really strong nagging feeling that I had to do something different on a different level. Being, I don't know if you know it or not, but there's only only 4% of psychologists are African-American. So you can imagine what that pool feels like to be pulled from this direction and that direction. Okay, I need to help this community. I need to do this, I need to do that. Oh, but I need to go to the prisons. Oh, but I need here. Um, and it just gets to the point, and I say this over and over because this is the best analogy that I have for this, is that it's like being that village doctor and you're going from hut to hut, you know, treating belly aches and fever and, you know, uh, nausea and you're treating these and you're, all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, something's making everyone sick. Let's go to the well and see what's wrong with this daggone well and let's treat the well. And for me, that well is, is Washington, DC. So it just made sense to, okay, let me just do this differently. I can make more of an impact 
if I can help put a mental health lens on everything that comes through Washington that I can get my hands on, uh, that I can vote on, that I can, any bill that I can develop or pass, uh, if I can put a mental health lens on it, I think we will come with better, uh, better outcomes because there's a mental health component to everything that, that we deal with here uh, in the United States. Uh, where that hit me, believe it or not, I was really walking around uh, the prison in Wabash, um, the Wabash uh, prison in, it's near uh, Vincennes, Indiana. And I was walking around and um, it was just this nagging feeling. And some of the people know that I actually ran for president as well. And that's when it first hit me. I was running, uh, it was just this nagging feeling. I just need to, you know, the biggest bullhorn. I just need to get to Washington. It, it, a lot of that had to do also with the last administration as well. It's like, can't people see how crazy this is? They need a psychologist <laughs> in the White House. They need a psychologist. I need to get the mental health out there. And so that push to make mental health, you know, sort of rise to the top was the main emphasis. Uh, we stayed a very, very little campaign, but we stayed in there till the end because we were pushing mental health issues. Um, but that just hit me that I had to go, had to go do something at, at a much different level. Um, I'm just, um, I just have never had that. Uh, I've never had that sort of restriction of that you can't do this or can't do that. It just never dawned on me that I should run, shouldn't run for president. I mean, I've got a PhD or maybe, maybe it's that, uh, that thing. Well, if I got a PhD, I should be able to do anything. I, I'm not sure if that was it, but it was just that nagging feeling that someone who understood things needed to be there. And I felt like our politicians were so disconnected uh, that somebody needed to be there who understood that were, was still on the ground. Um, that I'm, I'm very much on the ground. I still live in a neighborhood very close to where I grew up within blocks. Um, although I will say I have the better house in the neighborhood now, <laughs> so, but still the same neighborhood um, and that sort of thing. But just that, that push. While I was getting my PhD in, in University of Michigan, when I came back home to Indiana, a lot of my relatives, especially my male relatives had not even finished high school. That was unheard of with my generation. And just watching the devastation of the crack and the what it had did to what had happened to my um, my friendship base, my community, um, it was just really devastating. So I just that nagging feeling that that they've lost touch with what's actually going on on the ground level how they expected, I, you know, one of the things that really dawned on me was the, the income disparity. I was lucky enough to, that my dad worked for General Motors and the, you know, worked for General Motors, but he made his way up from being a janitor to actually being um, a superintendent at one of the plants. And one of the, the nepotism uh, <laughs> uh, perks to that was they got to bring their children uh, to work in the factories in the summers um, while they were in college. So I was able to do that. The, I was making $13 an hour when I was 18 years old uh, at, in the factories. And just to hear people, and just to put a date on it, that was 40 years ago or better. And just to hear people fighting now to get paid 
$15 an hour uh, is just really appalling to me that we haven't really even kept up with the cost of living by any stretch of the imagination. And then we wonder why people are acting the way that they're acting. Uh, well, I think um, we have to talk about, um, you know, the destruction of unions. Um, when we talk about your experience, that's uh, something that Indiana has become a master of uh, uh, destroying unions in, um, and of course, driving down wages and benefits. Uh, and it, it almost felt like people had become accustomed to expecting to have to work free jobs uh, to make it to pay rent and put food on the table. Um, and, um, and now we know uh, after the pandemic, people have taken a little bit of a kind of a revisit of that issue and thought, you know, I don't think I wanna work three jobs at minimum wage. And so, um, so I'm really hopeful that this is gonna uh, create a resurgence in union uh, activity and union growth um, because like, your experience shows that, uh, that union, uh, unions really support good wages and really support middle-class um, uh, income levels for families across, across the board um, that allows uh, kids like you to go to college and, uh, and, and live in a nice life. And, uh, and so I'm really hopeful that now we're gonna see some more union activity to uh, address what's going on now. I think that's terrific. And of course, there is a, a bill sitting in the Senate uh, right now in the US Senate, the PRO Act, uh, waiting for um, you know a senator uh, to come along and and uh, get that passed. So um, let's hope uh, you are you are the next senator who can go in there and push the pro act through that really supports union organizing. So all right, I, I sorry I interrupted you with some digression there, but <laughs> yeah, I, grew, I, grew I do want to know what your big issues are. Like, what do you think are the biggest issues um, that are you know that you are going to address when you become uh, the U.S. senator? You know, when I first started this, just like I said, the, the put a mental health lens on just about everything is most important. So it's it's not necessarily sectioning off what I'm going to address, although we right now we have a really difficult issue with affordable housing right now. Um, a lot of areas are suffering from not having housing that's affordable. We have a rush of investors, even in our community, that are coming from out of state. Uh, they're buying up homes left and right. The normal uh, young families can't afford to even buy these houses because people are coming in and they're buying houses as a investment, uh, not as, and we're, we're making it almost impossible for young people to have a home, uh, to be able to afford a, even a fixer-upper because these corporations are buying the fixer-uppers. Uh, it's really sad to see, and we, we have to do something to push that trend back. Uh, so affordable housing has just sort of just surfaced uh, recently as something that we have to resolve really fast and in a hurry, or we will be a nation of renters and not homeowners. Right. right, and it's all of those increasing prices have, you know, have moved into the renting, uh, you know, industry as well. And so it's becoming less and less affordable to rent uh, and buy. And in fact, um, now that in the end of this week, the moratorium on evictions will expire. And, you know, and, and I have been saying this for months that I am going to be looking for an avalanche of housing issues of homelessness and evictions. Um, and 
and perpetual homelessness that's caused by eviction because you know once you're evicted it's really difficult to get another rental uh you are you know you're blackballed uh in indiana something like 250,000 uh people were in danger of being evicted during the pandemic so it's hard to say if those are that's the same number that will be impacted when this moratorium is lifted um but that's there's it's a lot of people and it's there will be an avalanche. And so uh, housing is going to be the next big discussion topic for sure, everywhere. And it, it's very, it's costing, it's costing even the cities like Indianapolis because we have a homeless population that's just hanging out downtown. So now we've got people that were rushing to move downtown or like, okay, I'm, I'm getting out of Indianapolis, downtown Indianapolis is too many homeless people walking around and you know, people, tend not to want to see the reality of situations. They don't want it, the reality that up close and personal. Um, and that's unfortunate. Uh, the, but just even from way, Evansville, I mean, I've done uh, just calls to people that I know around the city, around the state and said, what's your issue in your area? So from Evansville up to Valparaiso, uh, I've got the same answer. We, number one thing for us is affordable housing. Um, and so that's the number one thing we have to look at first. Um, and that sort of surface along with that, I call it not just um, minimum wage uh, increase, but we need a breathable wage. And when I say breathable, is that at the end of each month, you can pay your bills and actually breathe a little bit and say, okay, you know, we, we were able to pull it all off. We were able to pay everything. Nobody's coming after us. We can actually afford tires uh, a set of tires before you see the white part uh, in the tires. We can actually get a whole set instead of buying one tire at a time. Those are breathable wages. And, and a lot of people don't have that, uh, that, that moment to breathe. And I've been there, I've been there. I've been in that spot where I'm afraid of my mailbox where I can, uh, so grateful that they had a tire that fit at one of those side tire places. Cause we've got them all over Indianapolis because a lot of people are in that, that state of not being able to afford a, a set of tires. They just need one tire to get them to the next uh, paycheck. And I'm, the tires are like a metaphor for me because it's, it's really real um, as far as being in danger uh, of getting into all kinds of accidents because of broad tires and stuff that you're riding on. Um, so I've been there. So the breathable wage is important. Uh, the way that women's reproductive rights are being attacked right now is really scary to me. Uh, and we have to push back on that very hard and very strong. Uh, it can take us to directions we don't wanna go. And because of the work I do with, believe it or not, the veterans, it keeps me in that mindset of what happens when uh, women's rights are, when women don't have rights to their own bodies. So I'm listening to the guys uh, that are over in Afghanistan. I'm listening to the guys that are in Iraq and the different areas where women are so devalued and their only value is for reproduction, uh, to have, to give birth when they're one, you know, just, that's all they're good for in some societies. Also, the deaths of women that have been brutally circumcised with unclean knives and that sort of things. 
And some of our soldiers have been in situations where all they had to give to that young woman that was dying uh, was just some, you know, some antibacterial cream or something, knowing that when they came back through that young lady would be deceased. Um, the mothers are just, can you do something for my daughter? Because this, the older son just goes in with a knife and just does this circumcision, uh, not knowing what they're doing, how they're doing, just the gross, just the, when you look at the extremes of what can happen with women in their bodies, uh, we know that we have to stop it at all costs. Any legislation that is pushed up a woman's legs is another violation of women's rights. Uh, because I know the extremes of that, I'm living in the extremes of that, um, it's, just, it's just imperative to stop that at all costs. So reproductive rights, um, however it's talked about, um, it's just imperative that, that hands off a woman's body, absolutely hands off a woman's body. So that's important to me. Uh, because I work in prisons and because our communities are uh, devastated by a lot of drugs, a lot of situations like that, uh, there's so many avenues, there's so many things to that. Right now we've got the heroin crisis. Let me jump to that briefly. I'm watching neighborhoods or communities being destroyed by the heroin crisis. Uh, they, of course, they've got the Narcan. Now they've got the nasal spray Narcan where they're bringing people back, but we're still losing people. They still die. If there's no one around you to administer the Narcan or that sort of thing, people are just dying. And most of my people that I know that have a heroin addiction, they also have three or four friends or relatives that have died uh, from that. So we're losing a generation of, of people there as well. Um, the cities look different. They feel different with that light of heroin addiction. Um, they need help. They need bigger, stronger help in that way. And it is a national crisis now. Um, as you know, um, nationally, almost 30% increase in the number of opioid uh, overdoses. Um, and in Indiana, 33% increase. Um, I think that, I think nationally it was almost like 100,000 people. Um, died of drug overdoses just last year. So um, it is a huge crisis. It is a very, a very huge crisis. Right. And we have to, we really have to think of what is, here's that psychologist in me that's like, okay, what's under the, under the, under the, what's under that? It's like, what is going on with our young people that they are needing something outside of themselves to anesthetize themselves? What are they anesthetizing themselves against? What is life, is life not having enough purpose right now? Are they not able to see themselves as succeed uh, in any other way? And I think that's part of it as well. Um, where is, where's the path to success these days? It's very difficult to find, especially if you're not college bound. Um, what is the path to success? Right, I agree. I see. I talk to young people, especially, and you know, and really hear the sense of hopelessness, um, particularly about government, because you know, I'm I work in politics. I'm trying to get young people involved, engaged, you know, uh, vote, be active in politics, help change the world. And the response I generally get is, "Why? Uh, you know, it's all broken. Government is broken. 
Um, politics is all corrupt. Everybody's corrupt. Both parties are corrupt. Um, and, um, and so why bother? Um, although, again, there is a bill that is out there in the U.S. Senate waiting for a good senator to get it passed. And that is, of course, the For the People Act. And I tell young people, I say, what if I told you there is a bill pending right now that addresses ethics among politicians, that um, uh, shines a bright light on finance, uh, campaign finance, and that gets rid of Citizens United, that uh, requires people to disclose uh, the contributions that they're getting from, uh, from, uh, from 501c4s that who don't have to right now uh, disclose the donors. Um, that expands voting rights. What you know? What would you think of that? And I, I, you know, I do get some good responses. But you know, there is, there are things that can be done. But we do have to have good senators who will get those passed. Right. So, uh, so. And I, you know, you know, people ask me, you know, you're not that experienced in uh, politics. I am very experienced in life. Um, and politics is, is something that I took on. Uh, but I think that if the time is right right now for someone who's not uh, bought and sold in the, in the political realm, uh, someone who's not, uh, who didn't groom themselves to be a pol politician, uh, somebody who people can trust again, uh, because I really, kind of hate that that thought that all politicians are crooks. I hear that all the time. And it's like, you know what, I'm gonna get in there. At least I'll know one that's not. Uh, at least I'll know one that's not. And so I'm gonna get in there and do that. As I watch this process, if you can agree to a lot of things you don't wanna agree with, there's a lot of money attached to that. Uh, there's all kind of packs uh, for that those those whether it could be a pack for oil or a pack for something that's going to be uh, troubling for the environment or something that's going to be troubling for women's rights or there's all kind of money big money uh, is attached to those things. Uh, on the other hand, we've got a whole bunch of people that are the real people that want good for this country, uh, there's less money attached to that. Matter of fact, the people who want the best for the country are not necessarily the people that are gonna send in $25 to help you keep, help you keep going. So politicians, I'm watching this process um, and I'm, I'm constantly telling my team, no, we're not going for that pack. No, we're not gonna do that. No, we're not. If you can find some packs that's, that's for the environment, if you can find some packs that are for women's rights, if you can find some packs that are for what I believe in, then sure. But we are not gonna go. And they're like, hey, but listen, doc, this one pack, it's just a two page process. And you, we could have your, your coffers filled like within a couple of weeks. And just it's like, okay, what do you look at? You look at, the fact that your campaign struggles at times compared to, oh, this would just take us over. Uh, this, this would make this whole campaign smoother. You watch that process and you constantly have to remind yourself, who are you and what do you stand for? 
And is it worth it selling your soul? And then once you start in that process, the, the human mind has a way of justifying anything that they do that's not quite what they wanted it to do. They have the, the your soul has a way of, of figuring out a way to justify something that you didn't really agree with if there's money attached. So it is a constant battle, battle I'm sure, among politicians to do that. Me, I want to uh, win to make sure that I'm there, but I'm not so desperate. Uh, I have a career. I'm not so desperate that I would, I don't like that feeling of selling out or of selling out to my own uh, beliefs. Um, that's very, yeah. So, but I can we know see that Todd Young has sold out and uh, we know that he's given up all of his integrity and all of his um, ethics um, to keep his right. position in the Senate. Uh, and it is frightening. And of course, he is opposed to the For the People Act, calling it partisan, which is, I mean, kind of funny. Like it's a really, you know, we, you know, because it's a democrat, it's just a democratic notion. Uh, ethics and in, in government is just a democratic notion, uh, and so you can't support it because of that. Uh, so, uh, so we really do need to get this passed. And um, and we need to get that passed in the in the worst worst way, so that politicians, it would free up politicians to just do their jobs. Um, and that's what's imperative. They just need to be able to do their jobs. I believe that most politicians started out being very, very good people. And under all of that, they're still good people. Uh, but with that dark money, I will say that dark money, they're in a, in a strange dilemma uh, about whether or not they're gonna stay in office or take this money over here. Uh, they're in a strange dilemma. One that I'm avoiding at all costs. I just don't want that. It's, it's not worth it. I wanna be able to sleep at night. Um, I'm sure they sleep fine, but I'm just a different, if it doesn't sit right with me, you'll know it. You'll know it. I just can't carry that. Right, yeah. So uh, we know, like I said, that Todd has sold out and, um, and, and I almost think that he, like you say, underneath that when he started this whole uh, adventure may have had some ethics. He used to claim that was his, uh, you know, kind of core, he had some integrity, but that has long since, um, you know, crumbled away as he supported uh, Trump in the uh, election uh, decision. I personally saw him on a videotape, you know, agreeing with people who, you know, oh yeah, yeah, the election was stolen, uh, you know, so, He's given it all away. He's given up any integrity he may have once had and is now just um, focused on, you know, finding an endless stream of money. Um, right. And that is just, you know, it's just so depressing. Uh, yeah, it's depressing but, to see those, you know, it's like they went into this zombie thing. It's like, you know, some people believe in zombies, but I, it's like any time that you are uh, such a puppet for uh, a party or a puppet to a person, it, it changes you. And uh, that's unfortunate that he has taken that route. Um, even the route of not saying anything at all, to me is just as dangerous as speaking up um, or not speaking, or not speaking up is just as dangerous as speaking up for something wrong, not speaking Absolutely. up against something wrong. So people like Liz Cheney right now to me are, you know, they're wondrous people right now because they went against their party to say, hey, wait a minute, this is crazy. Um, 
Right. Well, and we know that he doesn't have any interest in women's issues. And um, and of course, I will say it for the one millionth time that um, it takes women in office to uh, advance women's issues. And uh, Todd Young is never going to do anything about women's issues. Um, we and we need and there is so much that needs to be done. Um, you know, the dangers that you talked about, about uh, where we could go, uh, it, how low our our country could go and the horrible possibilities uh, of you know, devaluing women and just ignoring women's issues and women's rights and women's health and, you know, women's equality um, is just shocking. And it will take a woman uh, in government to change that. So Todd Young is never going to say a thing. And we uh, we need really federal legislation to write to uh, ensure women's access to reproductive health care. We will need federal legislation to do that. And uh, and I was really hopeful that during this Biden administration, I mean, it occurred to me at one moment, oh my gosh, what if the ERA gets um, passed and we have a constitutional amendment uh, guaranteeing equal rights to women? That could happen in this administration. What if um, the right to an abortion, the right to all reproductive health care was codified at the federal level? so that we didn't have to go through all of this nonsense, state by state, fighting all of these ridiculous laws that legislators pass, knowing that they will be struck down by the court, you know, wasting our tax dollars, defending all of these cases every year. Um, just this last session in Indiana, as I'm sure you know, bills were passed that required doctors who were giving out um, a, a chemical abortifacient to uh, lie to their patients and tell them they could reverse this halfway through. Uh, there is no, you know, telling them these things that aren't even true, requiring all women who want an abortion to get an ultrasound and requiring that a copy of that ultrasound be maintained in that woman's medical file. Uh, you know, just ridiculous, ridiculous restrictions. Right, or the 18-hour wait or, or that sort of thing before you can actually... Um, follow through with what your, your heart is telling you you need to do at that particular time or your mind is telling you what to do at that particular time. Uh, all of those things are absolutely ridiculous, especially given that there are no protections for women um, after the birth of their child or even during their pregnancy as far as making sure uh, that they're healthy and, and their health is maintained throughout the pregnancy and beyond because the infant mortality rate is really high and also women are dying in childbirth, especially black women. Um, and, and more so than even countries that are less rich than our country. So until we can resolve those things, until we make sure that, that they have parental leave so that they can stay home and be with their child for at least a few months of bonding that's so important. Uh, when you pull a little baby away from a mom, it's just so devastating. You have to go back to work when you know you've got this little tiny uh, vulnerable being that needs you. I mean, those things that tear at people, we need to fix those things. Um, the afterbirth things will determine how many people decide, you know, let's have another child. Let's go ahead and have this child. Let me. Let me, I can, I can do this. What people don't realize is that most abortions happen with women 
that have already had a live birth. So women know what they can handle. They know whether or not this is just too much, whether it's a wrong time, whether or not they can afford it, whether or not it's going to throw them into um, mud as far as careers and things are concerned where they'll be in poverty or struggling the rest of their lives and their children are struggling. They know what that's like and what they need to move forward. That decision does not need to be with anyone but her. Um, anyone. Exactly. Women are keenly aware of the uh, extra challenges and obstacles they face. And, and again, I will say it for a millionth and the first time, that is why we need women in government, because Absolutely. women are keenly aware of the challenges faced by women. Exactly. So, I think it, somebody said something that it just really just, just cracked me up one day. That I think it was on uh, uh, one of the internet, somebody was responding. Uh, and it said that if men could get pregnant, they would be an abortion clinic like they have Jiffy Loops at every corner. You know, it would be Jiffy Loop type <laughs> type thing going Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Because they know that they don't they wouldn't want those restrictions. They know what they can take. They don't know they don't want their careers to to end. Right. They know that they don't want this extra responsibility if they can't handle it at that particular point. So it's just interesting. There is no legislation, and Kamala Harris says this as well. There is no legislation that legislates anything that has to do with a man's body. So it's just interesting that we are having to even have these conversations, period. It's just, it's kind of sick in a way, you know, so. It is sick. And it, again, is a symptom of having, you know, way too many men in government. And this is where we are, and that is why. So, and this is what we need to do. <laughs> right, and it's not just, we need to have, more women, we need to have the right women. <laughs> I'm sorry, we have to have what? We have to have the correct women there. That's right, well. we do. Not all, not all women are alike. Um, we have some women that work against women's rights. That's true. Um, they, they work really hard against women's rights. So we just have to really, not only just look, oh, well, she's a woman. Look at her policies, look at what she's voted for Look what, what she stands for. Look what, what she's willing to stand up and say. And, uh, you know, yesterday when we were at the talk in Valparaiso, I mean, I'm very clear. That's not something I will ever, ever um, back off of. Women's rights, keep your hands off women's bodies, period, period. And it will never be anything different from that. So you have to, you know, follow those women that agree with that. And there are women like that, even in the Republican party. They're like, oh, I'm for, for fiscal responsibility, but you need to just keep your hands off my body. Yeah. Uh, I've heard several women that are Republicans that say that. So we have to find women that are for those things that we are for and vote in that direction and not just vote necessarily on party. Although I'm a strong Democrat, um, if I'd have to vote Republican to find some woman that's going to champion women's rights, then I would do that. Um, so we have to look at the woman and not necessarily the party, although I'm a Democrat. So, right. All right. Okay. So we're almost out of time, but um, I want you to talk a little bit about what you need in your campaign. Um, we know that Todd Young has, you know, got a bottomless pit of money. Um, so. Really? Uh, so what are you going to do to win uh, under these circumstances? What 
we are going to have to do, not <laughs> what we're going to have to do is connect arms with every group we could connect arms with and sort of weave our web of, uh, not our web, but our quilt of people that can get this campaign up and going and making sure it stays supported. The $5 donations mean so much to us right now that if people could, could consistently give $5, that adds up. We also need people to invite us to whatever talks or events. Uh, if you wanna put together a backyard barbecue or whatever, you need us to be there to talk. It's gonna take that type of grassroots movement, but I think that's what we're ready for. And I think that's the only thing we really trust right now as well. Uh, but I think we can do this. I think we can turn this whole state blue. Um, we've done it before. I used to, there have been times that I've been on uh, really stressed financially. And the last time I was stressed financially was after that whole presidential run because it kind of left me on my behind. Um, so I drove Lyft to make ends meet. And one thing about driving Lyft, I was able to get all over the different counties that are surrounding Indianapolis, really going way out to Bloomington or you know, two or three hours down the road, just asking people that was that were in my car, you know, what do you want for your next, you know, president? And what do you want for this and that? And most people are purple. Most people want the same things that we want. And I think that it's a matter of empowering them and let them know that they are not the silent. Uh, that if we if we put our voices together, we can make this happen. I don't think it's impossible. I don't think money means everything. We definitely need money to, to operate. Uh, we need those donations, $5, $10, $25. If you do it every month, it adds up for us. It's our stability. Uh, and again, invite us places. Uh, let, let get the word out. Uh, get on your Facebook page. Anything that I send you, send it out to everybody on your Facebook page. Those things matter to a movement. Those things matter to a campaign. And we have to use those ways of, of getting out there. So any help we can get, we, we greatly appreciate. And volunteer, <laughs> volunteer. We need people to knock on doors, get signatures, make phone calls, um, all of that. Just open up your Rolodex. That, that's what we need right now. All right, that sounds terrific. So, and um, you have um, a website, I'm sure. What's your website? Absolutely. Please go to uh, Dr. I made, we made it really, really easy. D-R-V-A-L-E-R-I-E-M-C-C-R-A-Y.org. So it's Dr. Valerie McCray, all ran together.org. And there you'll see the website, push the donate button, like just push it <laughs> and uh, just help us out and uh, I'll stand strong for you. That's all I can guarantee you. I can guarantee you that we'll be standing really strong uh, and we need everybody on board, so. That's excellent. Okay, wait, and I'm sure you have social media handles. Where can we find you on social media? Social media is still the same. Uh, Dr. Valerie McCray, any, okay. any type of way you can type in Dr. Valerie McCray, Dr. Val, Valerie McCray, whatever, it will take you to our social media pages as well. So they all have the same name, drvaleriemccray.org, Dr. Valerie McCray on Facebook, Dr. Val um, McCray on Twitter. Uh, okay. Let's see. Uh, 
Dr. McCray, U.S. Senate on, which one is that? Just sure, are you on, on in, Instagram? In, in, are you on Instagram? That's where all the kids are now. All the youngsters are yeah. all on Instagram now. And they're on so. TikTok. We're going to do a TikTok little thing soon. So I'm looking forward to that. That's excellent. Excellent. All right. Yeah. And um, it's it's uh, so exciting when young people get involved with politics. It uh, just gives me so much hope. So and of course, gives me lots of hope to see you involved in all this. Um, it feels like across the country, you know, women of color have suffered, you know, more than most um, from the policies uh, that it were put out in the last four years. And now um, women of color are out there rescuing our country. Um, and it's really just amazing to see uh, all across the country, women of color stepping up and really doing, doing the hard work uh, to save this country. So yeah. I, I just, I give you so much credit for that. It's a, it's a lot of hard work and, and it takes a lot of courage. And it takes uh, a lot so, of courage to do what you do and, and get the word out. So I really, really appreciate no, that. That's right. Uh, someone okay. stay current, yeah. Okay, great. So, all right. So um, I'm sure we'll be uh, popping in for an update um, as the um, campaign uh, carries on. So, um, but for now, um, thanks for coming and we will see you next time. All right. Thank you, Deb. Take care now.